The title for the talk this evening is The Power of Love. In the Buddhist tradition, the story is told of how on one occasion Ananda, the, uh, the cousin and the close disciple of the Buddha, came up to the Buddha and said, Lord, would it not be true to say that half of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness. And the Buddha replied, No, Ananda, it would not be true to say that half our practice is for the development of loving-kindness. It would be true to say that all of our practice is for the development of loving-kindness. And I think when we hear such statements, perhaps we resonate with the recognition of the importance, the value and the significance of love in this world and in our lives. And yet, what we also notice at times is that we're frequently and commonly overwhelmed by feelings which feel a long way removed from love, which feel in some ways to be the opposites of love. And we can perhaps question why this is so if we really do value that quality, which I think all of us know what it is, though perhaps it is one of the words used in more ways than almost any other in our language. Yet I think we understand what love and kindness really represent. And yet that's not necessarily the same as finding our way through to connecting with it in the situations we might wish to. And when we look at the way we relate to our life, the way we relate to our experience, we might perhaps reflect on a perspective that I find in the title of a book. It's a book written by Joanna Macy, who is a Dharma teacher and a uh, green ecological activist and she wrote a book which I actually haven't read but I find the title um, rather instructive and the title is World as Lover, World as Self and when one listens to, hears that title it immediately evokes the sense of what that is in a way posed as a counterpoint to which is the sense of the world as an enemy or the world as something which is other than who we are and so often we do relate to the world not as a lover not as who we are but as something apart from who we are something which is an enemy something which is threatening the very opposite of a friend and we see that in this way of relating to the world relating to experiences and other people and at times parts of ourselves that the experiences that arise when we, when we view, when we relate in this way, rather than feelings of love, of connectedness and kindness, we experience at times the very powerful forces of fear and of anger acting in our life, acting in our heart and mind. And we see that these are the, the tendencies we have, the conditioned reactions that we experience in relationship to pain and in relationship to that which threatens us with pain 
or with that which we do not wish to experience. We see when we examine it that fear is essentially the attempt to withdraw from, if at all possible, to remove ourselves from that situation where we're exposed to pain or where we're exposed to the threat of pain. And that fear in its action often has the result of blocking us from being able to take make a response to a situation that actually often has the effect of paralyzing us when it in fact seeks to protect us in some way. And when we see that if we can't escape, when we can't avoid that which is painful or threatening to us, either because we are in a situation where there is no possibility to remove ourselves from it, or because the paralysis of fear has made it impossible for us to respond in a balanced way, that what then arises is anger. That what we experience is the incredible power of anger, which is trying to actually thrust away, push away that which we feel threatened by, that which is unwelcome to us and which is impinging upon us. And that the, the anger comes with an incredible sense of energy and power, And sometimes we need that energy, it feels. We need that power to overcome the the paralysis of fear, to overcome the effect of fear on our system, which would render us incapable of acting. And so we sometimes feel that the anger is actually an ally, that the anger actually serves our well-being by enabling us to protect ourselves, to defend ourselves, by striking out, by pushing away, by somehow getting rid of that which we do not wish to experience, that which we find painful, harmful, or threatening. And what happens in our life when we experience pain and respond in this way with fear and with anger, it has the effect of withdrawing, of pushing away. And while we're actually trying to separate ourselves from the painful experience through one of those two modes of either withdrawal or pushing away, fight or flight, as it's sort of called in the more psychological language. Rather than actually succeeding in removing that unpleasant experience, just as it is, what we end up actually doing and experiencing is a sense of disconnectedness, of separation from the totality of our life. And that is the experience of fear and of anger that we're not able to, in a way, push away or withdraw from one single experience in isolation, much as we wish to do so, because that experience doesn't exist in isolation. It exists as part of a matrix of interconnected life. And that in pushing away from it, withdrawing from it, we actually withdraw ourselves from life. We withdraw ourselves from the connection which is the source of the vitality and the well-being which we actually are looking for, which we are actually yearning for. And we experience the incredible pain of a sense of deep separation, of disconnection, of fragmentation of our world. And we wonder, perhaps, why do we do this? What is it that's so compelling, so powerful about this way of relating, this reaction? that forces us, it seems, at times to reenact it again and again, even when we might know at some level and in our hearts 
that we really don't wish to be caught in this. And so, what we really need to look at in this area, in relationship to this aspect of our lives, of our relating, the way we relate to the painful, the threatening experience, is how we take it personally. And that really, the tendency and the habit to believe that this is something that is personal to me, that this is being done to me, that somehow the, the universe or someone in particular has got it in for me and that that's why it's happening and that when it feels like that, when we take it in that way that's so personally that it's happening to me, it's something about me that's causing this to occur we so easily and so often feel that that's unfair it doesn't feel really that we deserve that we're not here trying to make everyone else's lives miserable we're not here trying to cause pain and suffering to others. So why is it that we feel to be unjustly inflicted with it in our own experience, in our life? And in that sense of unfairness, of in a way an almost a righteous rejection of the experience, we, we push it away. We push it away. We, we don't allow ourselves to see how this personalizing of it is so having such an effect on what is going on. And we, we either reject the experience, we say that this which is happening, or that person who is acting, that that's wrong, that that's bad. And we, sort of, we form a, a moral judgment about the situation. And we can feel so righteous in our moral judgment. Or, and perhaps, perhaps even more painfully, we, we turn on ourselves. And we say, it's being done to me because there is something wrong with me. Because it is my fault. Because perhaps in some way, maybe I am truly deserving of all of this. And whether we, in a way, are rejecting the outer situation as being unfair, as being inappropriate and pushing that away, or whether we're turning on ourselves, condemning ourselves, or in a way, dismissing ourself, our value, by saying, no, I deserve this, or there's something wrong with me. How, how painful, sort of the deep ache that can come with that sense of there's something wrong with me. And often based on no more than the fact that painful things happen. And we wish they didn't happen, so we look for an explanation. We look for a reason. And the reason is either there's something wrong out there, or there's something wrong in here. And whichever way we go, it just increases and solidifies that sense of separation, that sense of disconnection, where we feel out of touch, where we feel no longer in harmony with the, with the deep yearning that we might have for connection, with the deep wish that we might have to really feel in touch with a place of caring and kindness and love. And we really need to understand about this way we take things personally. How often that that is colouring and flavouring the way we're thinking about our experience. Any experience, of course, but in this particular case, that which is painful. And there's a lovely story I'd like to read. A true hospice story on this theme. 
a woman came into the hospital in a very contracted state. The nurses called her a real bitch on wheels. Few wished to spend time with her. All her life had been a struggle for control. All she did not want and could not have was judged and pushed away from her heart. All that she could get was grasped at feverishly. And so she found herself dying alone in a great deal of pain. She had judged so much, so many and so often that even her grown children would not visit. For six weeks her isolation and pain increased until one night she came to a point where she could no longer stand the suffering in her back and legs or the pain of her unlived life. Feeling like jumping out of her skin, she began to review her life amidst the pulsations of her pain. Never had it been so clear to her how her intense holding and reaction had created such intense pain. Feeling death approach, she remembered herself as a youngster, open and hungry for the world. She saw how she had closed down over the years. With a sigh, she let the helplessness wash over her, and exhausted, unable to fight another moment, she surrendered, let go, and died into her life died into the moment. Letting go into the pain in her spine and legs, she began to sense, quite beyond reason, that she was somehow not alone in this suffering. She felt what she later called the ten thousand in pain. She began to experience all the other beings who at that very moment were lying in that same bed of agony. At first there arose the experience of herself as a brown-skinned woman, breasts slack from malnutrition, lying on her side, a starving child suckling at her empty breast, spine and legs twisted in pain. For an instant she became this Ethiopian woman, dying in the mud. Then there arose the experience of an Eskimo Inuit woman, lying on her side, dying during childbirth, tremendous pain in her back, hips and legs, and dying the same death. Image after image arose. She was each, dying beside the others. She experienced the ten thousand sufferings simultaneously. She said, The pain was beyond my bearing. I couldn't stand it any longer, and something broke. Maybe it was my heart. But I saw it wasn't just my pain, it was the pain. It wasn't just my life, it was all of life. It was life itself. And as the days unfolded after this extraordinary experience, Hazel's heart opened more and more to all the others in pain in the hospital. She asked after them constantly, and the room became a place where the nurses would come, because it was a room of love. Soon her children came to visit her because of the warmth and surrender of her phone calls, responding to her plea for forgiveness. Her grandchildren sat on her bed, the grandchildren she had never met, whose hearts she had rejected before they were born. 
For several weeks before her death, Hazel's room began, became a place of healing, of finished business, and of universal love. That understanding that it's not my pain, it's the pain. It's not my life, it's life itself. This understanding transforms the way we respond to pain. That when we start to see that it isn't so personal, when we actually experience that and we understand that viscerally in our body, in our very cells and heart, we start to open to the the fact that it is part of life, that we don't need to be in fear of it or angry about it. And we start to have a sense of a forgiveness, a forgiveness for life to life, a forgiveness to others, and a forgiveness to ourselves for the pain that we have experienced and the pain that we have seen others experiencing. And we see that 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 forgiveness is something of an incredible gift which we can offer to others and to ourselves that forgive, to give, it's a giving and a giving of kindness a giving of kindness in response to where we might otherwise have reacted in fear or in anger and we see that the forgiveness opens our heart it opens our capacity to love and to actually let go of the tendency, the the grasping and the holding on to the pain and our resentment of having to experience it. That we let go of the view that anger and fear somehow serve us by protecting us from the painful. We actually forgive ourselves, each other and the world for the reality that we experience pain. And we really start to understand that that capacity for love, that capacity for forgiveness, for forgiveness, is something we can connect with when we don't take things so personally. And yet, at the same time, we see, we're exposed to at times in our life, situations where we observe people causing harm, causing pain to others, to ourselves. Sometimes we see ourselves acting in those ways that do cause pain, that seem to be harmful and obviously so. And, and it's so clear that this seems to be something harmful, something threatening, and that the, the person acting or ourselves must know that to be so. That we, we start to form views and ideas about something being wrong or there being some, some badness there. And we go so far as to use the language of evil to say this is how we explain that, that someone or some action is intentionally harming. We, we, we take that as evidence of evil, of wrongness, and that with that sense and that believing, that investing in the idea of wrongness or of evil, we feel again justified in our anger, justified in, in fighting with, in striking out at or pushing away that which we see or experience. And, and it's so hard in those situations to let go, to let go of that anger when it feels 
so righteous, so appropriate, because the, the action we're responding to, or the person, or even ourselves, seems to be so obviously aware of what they're doing. And in this regard, in, in this, I found a way of relating and reflecting upon the situation that I find very helpful for myself. And just like to offer it in a way as a, in a, the form of a, of a little story, which you can just imagine yourself being in the position of what's happening in the story. And you may like to close your eyes or just imagine the situation that you're going for a walk in the woods. And as you're walking, and it's autumn and there's leaves on the ground, you see a small, rather lovely-looking puppy standing near a tree. And having general sort of friendliness towards small creatures, as we do when we're not caught up in preoccupation with our problems, it's just a reaching out, just quite naturally, to stroke and be friendly, just an offering of kindness towards this small and rather cute-looking creature. And as we do so, the little puppy snarls and bites our hand, quite painfully, drawing blood. And our first response is, oh, that little whatever the word that comes to mind. Or we might even find ourselves actually wanting to strike out, to kick or to hit that creature that we were just being friendly and it's bitten us. How could it do that? What a horrible beast. Whatever we might have the first reaction to that experience. And then, looking more closely, what we see is that one of the puppy's feet is trapped in one of those sort of gin traps with the springs in the jaws. And we realise straight away in that moment we see this puppy is in pain, this puppy is terrified and hurting, and it's reacting to that. It's reacting to that. And in that recognition, suddenly the anger doesn't make any sense anymore. Perhaps we might be angry with the person who put the trap there, but we're certainly not going to be angry with the puppy when we see what the situation is. We may actually be more likely touched with compassion for its situation despite that it's just bitten us. And so then imagine again another scenario, walking in the woods in autumn. One sees a little puppy, and in the same way reaches out to stroke the little creature, and it bites one, again, painfully drawing blood. And we can't see its feet. It's standing deep in a deep pile of leaves. Is it possible in that moment to trust that the puppy's foot is caught in a trap, even though we can't see it. Because we understand that it's not the nature of creatures to attack and bite unless they're in pain or in fear. And that even though we can't always see that which is causing the pain, that causes someone else, or at times causes ourselves to act in ways that seem so harmful, so intentionally destructive or we could say wrong but if we just look at ourselves and this is something that I've found very important to recognize that if we look at ourselves and look at the times when we have done things as we all have which we've later regretted where we've acted in ways that caused harm to another that caused harm to ourselves and if we look and really examine what I think we find is that we ourselves were in pain or afraid at the time we did that action. 
that we would busily or desperately trying to escape from something which was afflicting us. And in that blind and perhaps terrified attempt to escape, to free ourselves from that pain, we struck out at another or at ourselves. And if we see that and if we can trust that that is in fact so, we start to understand that this is not different for anyone else, for any other creature. And that in that again we start to find some space for being able to hold even those actions that we see to be harmful and that appear to be deliberate, which we previously might so have strongly judged and felt so righteous in our anger towards. And that's not saying that we condone them or that we don't, where necessary and appropriate, take action to protect ourselves and others from such deliberate harmful activity. But that we do so not from a place of anger and condemnation, but from a place of compassion and of caring. And in doing this, we actually create a space whereby we can just open our heart to the pain that we see in the world around us and that we sometimes experience in ourselves. I'll just read a piece from Rilke. We have no reason to harbour any mistrust against our world, for it is not against us. If it has terrors, they are our terrors. If it has abysses, these abysses belong to us. If there are dangers, we must try to love them. And if we only arrange our life in accordance with the principle which tells us that we must always trust in the difficult, then what now appears to us as the most alien will become our most intimate and trusted experience. How could we forget those ancient myths that stand at the beginning of all races? The myths about dragons that at the last moment are transformed into princesses. Perhaps all the dragons in our lives are princesses who are only waiting to see us act just once with beauty and courage. Perhaps everything that frightens us is in its deepest essence something helpless that wants our love. Perhaps everything that frightens us is something helpless that needs our love. How might it transform our world and our life if we were to bring this understanding to the way we live and to the way we relate to others and to ourselves. Some years ago when I (coughs) I guess I would say I hadn't yet consciously embarked on spiritual practice although I think what I was doing was very much that way inclined Um, I had a meeting with someone this person I regard as my first spiritual teacher and it was rather one of those sort of everyday or maybe not so common miracles that occur and I was 
cycle touring around the South Island of New Zealand. And cycling in one direction, I passed someone parked on the side of the road with their bicycle facing or heading. They were going in the opposite direction. They just stopped. I just said hello. And somehow we started talking and discovered that I'd been at school with her younger sister and I knew her father. And we just talked and we didn't actually stop for about 24 hours. Just something happened. And one of the things that I learned in that meeting and for which I feel forever grateful is this meeting this woman, Sarah. She helped me to see and to understand that the actions that we engage in in this world, which for me, I'd always been, I just couldn't understand why it was that people did things, including myself, which was so clearly harmful. I just couldn't understand why do they do it? Why do I do it? It just was so perplexing. And what she essentially helped me to understand was that those actions come from our seeing or our blindness. And that when we actually are clear in understanding what's going on, we don't act in those ways that cause harm and pain. But when we're lost, when we're caught in blindness, when we're caught in ignorance, then we do act in those ways. And that we don't ever actually do something when we really know and are totally clear at all levels with the fact that this is not a helpful and useful thing to do. It's only because so often we're not clear about that. At some level we think that this is serving our well-being or the well-being of others when we act in a way that causes harm. And that's the blindness, that's the lack of clear seeing, which for each of us we experience to different degrees at different times. And yet in understanding that, what we understand is that, or what I understood, is that people are not bad. And for me, the great relief that I am not bad. So one understands, oh, yes, blindness. Certainly one can confess to blindness. And yet, if a blind person walking down the street should step on our toe, and we know they're a blind person, are we likely to get upset with them? It's only if we think that they're perfectly, they have perfect vision and they deliberately stood on our toe, then we might feel some reaction. So, I'd like to read another story. I have to give a somewhat shortened version of it because it's a little longer than I have time for. And it's based on a, a story written by Pierre de Latre. Reports reached the Dalai Lama that a certain master of Kung Fu was roaming the countryside converting young men to the study of violence. He had made his reputation by taking on eight fierce warriors who attacked him on a mountain pass, killing seven of them so quickly that the one with the broken legs who survived swore the marvellous voyager met their attack with movements so swift, he seemed merely to walk through them and continue peacefully on his way. Now, it was the tradition in Tibet when such strange or powerful people would come into Tibet to invite them in conformity with this custom to come to visit the Dalai Lama because he claimed himself to be a spiritual teacher 
and so it was felt appropriate that he should meet with the Dalai Lama. And rather pleased with the invitation, he came, strode into the ceremonial hall of the Dalai Lama. And being only ten years old at the time, the young god-king could not help but be impressed with the marvellously potent vibrations he gave off. What exactly do you do? said the Dalai Lama. Royal Highness, the best way to show you would be for you to stand here in front of me while I do a little dance that took me some fifteen years to perfect. Though I can kill a dozen men instantly with this dance, have no fear. The Dalai Lama stood up and immediately felt as if a wind had blown flower petals across his body. He looked down but saw nothing. You may proceed, he told the Master of Kung Fu. Proceed? I've already finished. And what you felt were my hands flicking across your body. If it please, Your Highness, this was a very slow motion demonstration of how I could have broken all your bones and destroyed your organs. And I could have done that all in that one brief dance. Beaming with pride, he flexed his muscles and looked his body up and down and said, To achieve great peace, there are demons inside and outside that need to be eradicated. And I have learnt to see them and catch them and kill them before you get away, before they get away, just as you catch a fly. I do not catch flies, said the Dalai Lama. A murmur of approval went up from the assembled monks. <laughs> no, said the Dalai Lama. We do not catch flies in Tibet. The master of Kung Fu seemed momentarily taken aback. I know a master greater than you, said the Dalai Lama. Without wishing to offend your highness, I doubt that very much. Yes, I have a champion who can best you, said the boy king. Let him challenge me then, and if he bests me, I shall leave Tibet forever. If he bests you, you shall have no need to leave Tibet. The Dalai Lama looked around to see if his monks were as confident as he was, but they all looked very disconsolate. The huge guards were looking away, hoping he wouldn't call on one of them. And the others were looking at the guards, obviously convinced that not one of them stood the slightest chance. The Dalai Lama clapped his hands. Regent, he said, summon the dancing master. And while we're waiting, let's have some tea. The tea ceremony was just over when the regent returned with the dancing master. He was a wiry little fellow, half the size of the master of Kung Fu, and well past his prime. His legs were entwined with varicose veins. He was swollen at the elbows from arthritis. Nevertheless, his eyes were glittering merrily, and he seemed eager for the challenge. The master of Kung Fu did not mock his opponent. My own guru, he said, was even smaller and older than you, and yet I could not best him until last year, he moved so quickly, but when I finally caught him, I finished him off. <laughs> to show that I know your methods, and I won't be tricked into exhausting my energy, I shall first let you strike me at will. Your frail little hands can do me no harm, while I am at full strength. The two opponents faced off. The master of Kung Fu was taking a jaunty, indifferent stance, tempting the other to attack. The old dancing master began to swirl very slowly, his robes wafting about his head. 
His arms stretched out and his hands fluttered like butterflies towards the eyes of his opponent. The fingers settled gently for a moment upon the bushy eyebrows. The master of Kung Fu drew back in astonishment. He looked around the great hall. Everything was suddenly vibrant with rich hues of colour. The faces of the monks were radiantly beautiful. It was as, as if his eyes had been washed clean for the first time. The fingers of the dancing master stroked the nose of the master of Kung Fu and suddenly he could smell pungent barley from a granary in the city far below. He could smell butter melting in the most fragrant of teas as the Dalai Lama, incomparably beautiful, sipped tea and watched him calmly. A flicking of the dancing master's foot at his genitals and he was throbbing with desire. The sound of a woman singing through an open window filled him with an exquisite yearning to draw her into his arms and caress her. He found himself removing his skin-tight leather suit and standing naked before the dancing master who was now assaulting him with joy at every touch. His body began to hum like a finely tuned instrument. He could hear the great horns resounding in a thousand rooms of the Patala, praising creation. He opened his mouth and sang like a bird at sunrise. And the master of Kung Fu began the most beautiful dance that had ever been seen in the great ceremonial hall of the Grand Potala. It lasted for three days and three nights. And only when he finally collapsed at the throne of the Dalai Lama did he realize another body was lying beside him. The old dancing master had died of exertion while performing his final and most marvelous dance. But he had died happily, having found the disciple he had yearned for. The new dancing master of Tibet took the frail corpse into his arms and weeping with love drew its body close. Never had he felt so strong. When the Dalai Lama said, I know a master greater than you, he was speaking of the power of love. Understanding that it's not possible to overcome the force of violence, of anger and of hatred through fear and anger and violence in response. Understanding that the only way to overcome it is through love and that love is the greater power In this understanding, what we see is that in responding to threatening, angry or fear-producing situations or people with love, we actually transform them with that love. That if we succeed in destroying through violence, we only become that which we actually feared in the first place. If we are successful in acting out anger and violence, we become angry and violent. And that's no solution. And yet the power of love is actually there for us. How do we meet the Kung Fu Master who is rampaging through our life or whom we find rampaging through our heart? Is it possible to meet, to meet him with love, to meet her with love, 
Is it possible to touch her with kindness and with caring? When we find that we're able to do this, we find that we can touch the innate goodness of others, that we can touch the innate goodness within ourselves. We find quite naturally that we treat others with respect, that we quite naturally meet them, that we open to them with love. And there's an incredible healing power that comes in connecting with and trusting our capacity for loving, our capacity for bringing acceptance that is there, that is not removed from any one of us. It really is that capacity for loving which heals us. That we often feel the need to be loved and we yearn for love to be offered to us. And it's quite appropriate that we do wish for this. And yet, what really happens, I think, in this situation is that when we are loved, we feel safe to love. And in feeling feeling safe to love ourselves, that is actually what is so powerful. That is actually what's so precious, is our own capacity to love, not so much that we receive it from another. Though often we make that as a precondition for being able to love. And yet, when we understand that it's not a precondition, that we don't need to demand that of another or of life, but that we can actually find the reservoir of that love within ourselves, that it is something we can connect with, that we, we sense a, a profound okayness in life, a profound okayness in ourselves, where there's really the end of any sense of there being something wrong with me or wrong with life. That we, we really see the end of the rejection and the condem- condemnation of ourself that comes from a perception of our limited capacity or inability to love. And that this really brings us to a place of peace, a place of joy, and a place of love, which really are understood to not be other than, to not be different experiences. They're different aspects of a wholeness and an inner connectedness that comes when we trust, when we understand, and when we connect with the power of love. And we see that in finding this within us, in trusting that this is equally in those around us and without us, outside of ourselves, as well as within us, we really sense how life is a gift, how life is something offered to us. And our natural response to that benevolence, to that gift which we receive, is a a natural and effortless outpouring of friendliness, of love and compassion towards others and towards ourselves. So, can we sit quietly together for a moment, please? May all beings be free from fear and anger. May all beings be touched by life's blessing. May all beings realize the power of love.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.